this episode was pre-recorded as part of a live continuing education webinar. On-demand CEUs are still available for this presentation through all CEUs. Register at allceus.com slash counselor toolbox. Between writing notes, filing insurance claims, and scheduling with clients, it can be hard to stay organized. That's why I recommend Therapy Notes. Their easy-to-use platform lets you manage your practice securely and efficiently. Visit TherapyNotes.com to get two free months of Therapy Notes by just using the promo code CEU when you sign up for a free trial at TherapyNotes.com. In today's podcast, we're going to be talking about polyvagal theory with Curtis Bozansk. He is an LPC and an addiction counselor in Sacramento, California. He has a private practice which specializes in addiction and trauma, and he's also taught at the University of San Francisco. Uh, Curtis also offers trainings for both the community and professional audiences, and he has one coming up that looks really cool on the trauma response and the imprint it leaves. And this is going to occur in Sacramento on November 1st, 2019. You can learn more by going to his website, curtisbazanski.com, or clicking on the link in this um, presentation. Welcome, Curtis. Thank you very much. Great to be here. Alrighty, so let's just start out, you know, polyvagal theory, that sounds really medical and complicated. Can you break it down for us and just help us understand, you know, what it is and, you know, then we'll get to why it's important. Yeah, it is very complicated and there's actually a lot of uh, different aspects and implications to it, but I think the important piece is that really stand out to me and I think the listeners on the podcast uh, really have a lot to do with mental health, um, but he also connects it to spectrum disorders in that. It was put together by Dr. Stephen Porges and really in a simple way, he is linking a nerve that goes from our brain to our body um, as influencing a lot of psychiatric disorders. Mm -hmm. So this nerve goes from our brain down into our body, and it has three branches to it. And those each branch serves kind of a different purpose and activates a different response to our nervous system. What's interesting to me is 80% of that nerve is what's called afferent, which means it goes down. So that means that information is coming into our brain through what he calls neuroception, which is just a different type of perception. And that information travels rapidly through our brain to this vagus nerve, and it travels down into our body, and it activates a sensation. That sensation then travels up the body, into the brain, and activates an emotion. That emotion activates a thought, and then that thought acts behavior. So this is what's called a bottom-up process. And based on the information that is being received, the vagus nerve is, is going to respond accordingly. And so one branch, they each have a name, but it's complicated and I think overwhelms people. If our neuroception is perceiving safety, then we remain in what's called our social engagement. Um, a lot of people, I think, will recognize Pat Ogden's window of tolerance. I think a lot of people know about that. The social engagement zone is basically within the window of tolerance, in that optimal arousal zone, where we are alert but calm. We can engage, we can socialize, we can play, we can ask for help, we can be intimate, cuddle, affectionate, all that. If we sense a threat, danger, 
then one of the other nerves is going to activate and activate the fight flight response. In fact, Stephen Porges thinks that these are responses that have evolved over time. So the social engagement response is the highest evolved response where we're going to be turning to others to ask for help. Fight flight is a little older response. So the body is going to release adrenaline, increase the heart rate, release cortisol, going to make our senses very heightened. And we're trying to determine, do I need to flee this threat or fight this? Ultimately, go ahead. So with the polyvagal theory, we talk a lot in my classes about the HPA axis. And so with the polyvagal theory, that first branch is your calming um, response. The second branch kind of correlates to the HPA axis when the vagus nerve says, dude, something's wrong here and we need to prepare. And that's when the cortisol is dumped and the norepinephrine and the glutamate and all that kind of stuff starts Absolutely. cascading. That's okay. when it really starts kicking in. You know, so this is like we're hiking in the woods, we're feeling good, we're in our social engagement, we see a bear. And then now that system comes online and we determine, do I need to flee this bear or possibly try to fight it? The third response is the oldest. And what's fascinating is this nerve is actually unmyelinated. So nerves are myelinated, which means they have a sheath around them. I always say this is like the, the rubber on an electrical cord. It allows the electricity to go back and forth very rapidly. The other two nerves are myelinated. This nerve is unmyelinated, which means the response coming back to social engagement is very slow. This response is the freeze response. So this is as if the bear is on top of us now and our body goes, there's no escaping this. So we're gonna freeze, we're gonna collapse, submit, play dead, or dissociate. Mm And so this is usually when the three types of dissociation kick in, either depersonalization, derealization, or amnesic dissociation. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now, ideally, once the danger is gone, we come back to social engagement. Right. But what Stephen Porges proposes is that there's a lot of people where if the trauma is not resolved, then the vagus nerve continues to do its job and it is it is operating as if we're still in the threat in the danger and so a lot of people with psychiatric disorders or mental health issues um, and he even proposes spectrum disorders that they're not operating in the social engagement zone they're operating in that fight flight freeze response those two branches and on, on your website i know you're um, certified in emdr yeah. Um, so can you tell us a little bit about how a lot of the people who are listening to this podcast are familiar with or, or certified in EMDR? So you want to talk a little bit about how EMDR um, connects with this and, you know, EMDR talks about the amygdala and, and artifacts that are left over and, you know, you want to, can you connect or draw some parallels for us? Yeah, absolutely. So when I think of resolving trauma, that's, that's the goal is to go from unresolved trauma to resolved trauma. And they found that the brain lights up differently when someone is talking about resolved trauma versus unresolved trauma. Um, I use two modalities. I use EMDR and I use the comprehensive resource model. So the comprehensive resource model is a blend of EMDR, um, 
internal family systems, attachment theory, brain spotting, somatic experiencing is kind of like all of them combined. It, so what I am trying to do is help the person stay in their social engagement zone in session mm -hmm. while processing terror. Very difficult to do. So what about a person who is never in that social engagement zone? They, they stay in that fight, flight, freeze status. How, yeah. how do we help them even get to the social engagement zone so they can begin to heal? So the, to me, it always begins with the relationship with the therapist and creating a safe environment. If we don't feel safe, even if there's not a legitimate threat, then we're not going to be in that social engagement. And so it's my responsibility as a therapist to one, understand what are their defenses? How does their nervous system come online and try to protect them so that I can work with that? What's their attachment style so I can understand that and work with them? Fostering an environment of safety. Even my office is organized in a way um, to help feel safe. I don't have lights in their eyes. Um, I, I keep the smell neutral. A lot of these people have sensory sensitivities. So my office is designed to be a safe environment for them, as safe as possible. And then I do a lot of resourcing. If anybody is trained in EMDR or any of the other trauma modalities, resourcing is very important because the nature of EMDR is triggering. We're doing trauma work and the body is going to fall back on its default way of dealing with danger. So if we activate them too much in session, their old responses kick in. They either dissociate or they're stuck in that fight fight and they're not processing the trauma. So doing a lot of resourcing with those modalities, which usually require extra training, a lot of understanding about these, these trauma responses to keep the person in their window so, so that they can stay with it and not be overwhelmed. Right, right. So that kind of leads us nicely into the next talking point about what are the clinical implications of polyvagal theory, especially in regard to trauma? Yeah, absolutely. So when, when I think of it, one, I also like to cover what is trauma. I think um, our society, I think we're getting better at understanding trauma, but there's still a lot of people that don't fully understand it. To me, trauma is less about what happened and more about how it impacts the person. I always say we don't judge concussions based on what hit the head, but the symptoms of the concussion. And so trauma to me is more about what impacted the person and how it left that imprint on them. And so I see a lot of shock trauma, you know, the, the physical abuse, sexual abuse, near-death experiences. But then I see a lot of covert trauma attachment disruption, difficulty fitting in in life, connecting, bonding, feeling understood. Those two are very different types of trauma, but the brain and the body do not distinguish them as different. Attachment is needed for survival. We're one of the few mammals that is born helpless and is helpless for quite some time. And so any threat to attachment with our caregivers or our peers is seen as a threat to our life. So attachment disruption to me is as big a trauma as a shock trauma. So then what ends up happening is the body is gonna to respond to these traumas. It's going to, the, the vagus nerve is gonna activate. And this vagus nerve is very fascinating because it connects to our heart, our lungs, intestines, stomach, our genitals, 
all the organs and it's going to respond. And ideally this is a short-term response. We mm -hmm. find safety and we come back. But if the brain never thinks we're safe, we haven't escaped the bear, then it continues to activate, stay operating in state. So the clinical implications are, if we now have a body that is consistently releasing adrenaline, consistently has a higher heartbeat, consistently releasing cortisol, norepinephrine, you know, all these stress hormones, then we're going to start to see not just psychiatric responses to that, anxiety, uh, difficulty paying attention. I always say like, how hard would it be for you to pay attention to me if you're running from a bear? Pretty hard. So we're going to see attention deficit problems, uh, anger issues, intermittent explosive disorder, oppositional disorder. I see a lot of those when trauma is in their developmental history. I see a lot of those as symptoms to trauma. And I also, you know, as you're talking, I can see the involvement of the vagus nerve um, in people who have not necessarily what you would identify as a, an acute trauma or a single episode, but even in people who experience chronic stress, um, if you yeah. want to think of the type A personalities, you may look back and if it's possible, I don't even think it is, but if it's possible that they don't have any adverse childhood experiences, um, <laughs> uh, that they still, some people still put so much pressure on themselves or live in such a stressful, they created such a stressful world for themselves for whatever reason, that they are constantly dumping cortisol and not sleeping. And which, you know, as, as you said earlier, the vagus nerve, you know, it connects to our genitals. So they don't have any libido. It connects to our, our gut. So our gut is upset. And 95% of our serotonin is made in the gut. So yep. if we're upset in the gut, we're upset in the neurotransmitter balance. Uh, so there, there's a lot of, impl there are a lot of implications for understanding this mind-body connection. And when we are st stressed, to use, I don't like that term because it's such a garbage term, but when we are stressed, even if it's not trauma in the purest definition, that the vagus nerve recognizes that there's some sort of threat and is responding to that, whether it's a threat of a loss of job or a loss of contract or whatever it is that the person is, is overwhelmed about at the moment. I totally agree. I mean, you take uh, your software salesman, this is big in California, software salesperson who's commission-based, right? Like that's going to create stress. And how I like to think of stress, I heard this um, through one of my favorite speakers, Andrew Chapman. Stress is the, the internal resources not feeling adequate to handle the external. Mm -hmm. So that can look so different for so many people. And then when you incorporate temperament and, and attachment style and all that, um, I think we're all too quick to judge the context of the stress or trauma and, and not focus so much just on the response. And that prevents a lot of people from working on this stuff. I mean, the worst trauma history I ever heard, the person immediately followed it up with, but other people have had it worse. So who am I to complain? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I hear that all so often. I think if we can just start to understand like Stress is stress. The body doesn't care about the context. And this is how it's impacting us. And it's, and it's creating a lot of issues in people that I see. And then when that goes on for a long period of time, we see autoimmune disorders, gastrointestinal disorders, 
you know, if someone is stuck in a freeze response, they're alexithymic, they're depressed, they're dissociated, they're disconnected, you know, anhedonia, like a lot of these issues that a lot of medicines don't work for them. And if someone's fluctuating between flight, flight and freeze, now they're going to look bipolar, possibly psychotic, a little really impact a lot of that. And I, I work with so many of these people who've been in therapy for decades, many years, many different diagnoses. And, and what's been happening is they've been trying to treat symptoms and not the source of those. Right. And, and in, in my classes, I talk a lot about looking at the reason. If somebody presents to you with, and they say, doc, I'm depressed. Okay. Well, that gives us a starting point. Tell me what that looks like for you. And then if they say, you know, one of their symptoms is fatigue. Okay. Let's figure out what's causing your fatigue. Do you have low thyroid? Do you have low testosterone? Are you not sleeping well? There's a whole mess of things that it could be. And until we solve that, I talk about um, a pipe leak, if you will. You have a pipe going from the road into your house. And if there's a leak in it, you're not going to have very good water pressure. And you're going to be trying to take a shower, wash your hair, very little water pressure. And it's frustrating. Well, you've got a couple of options. You can deal with it, which is not going to make you happy. You can turn up the water pressure at, at, the, um, at the street, which will increase the water pressure in your house for a short time. Be right. But as you do that, where, where, wherever that leak is, it's going to get bigger. And to me, that's what taking psychotropics often is. We are addressing, like you said, addressing the symptom, but not the cause of the symptom. If we're actually addressing whatever that leak is, you know, keeping the system, getting the system healthy again, then, you know, the person is potentially going to, you know, get that full water pressure back and not have residual issues from it. I, I agree. The analogy I use is like trying to diagnose a car that's underwater. Like mm -hmm. if, if a car is underwater, it may have some engine problems, <laughs> but... It's going to be hard to diagnose them while it's underwater. We got dried out, especially when when substance use is involved. They're they're impacting very much that way. And, and you would expect it to be have engine problems underwater. Absolutely. You know that's not surprising. Yeah. And so what I see a lot when we are able to work through trauma and and what I find amazing is PTSD can be healed. A lot of my clients do not qualify for PTSD anymore. You know it's not that they just have to manage it; they can heal it. Once we get to that point, we get a better idea of what's going on. So sometimes we work through it and we do see they still have some low-level depression going on. That may be a result of chemical deficiency or lack of nutrition or whatever. Um, but working through that trauma really helps give us clarity as to what is going on. Oh, and when you look at the symptoms of PTSD, you've got hypervigilance. You know, that's that, you know fight or flee sort of thing going on yep. and they're not feeling safe. You've got withdrawal from other people. I think mm -hmm. that would fall more in the freeze if we're just going to try to categorize it into those two places. If when you start looking at the symptoms from a survival perspective, they make so much sense. It it's makes just so much sense. Yeah. It's just a matter of helping people figure out, okay, how can I get out of this, this forest that I'm in and get away from the daggum bear? And yeah. And, and that's where we need to help them get to, because once they understand it, it doesn't make it go away right away. It's not like, oh, we can talk about it for an hour and, oh, that makes so much sense. I don't have symptoms anymore. But right. um, we can help them identify alternate ways to deal with the bear so the bear doesn't elicit that same response from them.
Yeah, and I think a couple of the barriers is one, people don't always know they have trauma. So mm-hmm. um, I love Bruce Perry's work. He's one of my people I really admire and look up to. He's huge on developmental histories. Mm-hmm. People don't always know they have trauma. So it's our responsibility as a clinician to be able to know how to conduct a really thorough developmental history so we can help them see how there may be trauma. Not putting trauma on them and saying, you know, I think based off this, you've been sexually abused. I, I stay way out of that. But I talk a lot about here's what shock trauma is. Here's what relational trauma is. Here's how it impacts us. And when I start talking about it that way, people start realizing, yeah, I identify with that. And then the other barrier I see is because the, the vagal response is a bottom-up process, talk therapy only goes so deep. So it does require, in my opinion, a lot of these other mind-body approaches, somatic experiencing, EMDR, comprehensive resource model, sensory motor psychotherapy. You know, there's so many that are coming out now. It's fantastic. Um, But that talk therapy gets really limited in, in really resolving the trauma response. And going back to what you said about one of the barriers being developmental or we don't take a, a good enough developmental history, it's so important for people to understand because a lot of times people come to counseling when they're, you know, adults and they look at stuff from their childhood and they go, Psh, you know, whatever, compared to other stuff, that was no big deal. But when you're four exactly. and it happens, it is a really big deal. You know, when you're 24, heck, I was 44 and my dog died and it was crushing to me. Um, I just love this animal. And, you know, I can only imagine for a four-year-old who's never experienced loss and, you know, was attached to that. It's, you know, obviously not the primary attachment figure, but was attached to that animal. Um, That's going to be very traumatic for them and not minimizing and saying, well, that, that wasn't that big of a deal. Maybe it was, maybe it wasn't, but the person needs to be able to evaluate for themselves, you know, when my parents split up, you know, some people are just, they're grateful that the fighting has ended, but other people, it's very traumatic for them and they may take it personally. So we want to help them go back and understand that children think dichotomously. Children can't see the grays and think, well, you know, maybe this is, dad has some stuff going on and they are very egocentric. It's about me. And it's either it's all or nothing and they can't see other reasons for something happen happening and helping adults understand the child mind, you know, understand that inner child, if you will, that they have that is still wounded and going, what did I do wrong? Why did my parent leave me? Right. Um, It is so important because that child, that inner child, if you will, um, still has that vagus nerve that is stressed out because a four-year-old cannot go to Publix and get their own groceries. You know, a four-year-old cannot survive on their own. So that person still has some artifacts from that trauma, from that child who, you know, feared for some reason uh, for their own safety. Absolutely. Um, And that's a huge thing. I think a big starting point I always start with people is learning to have compassion compassion for themselves and understanding helps foster compassion. So when we can start to say like, yeah, kids are egocentric, they do two things. Primarily they, they generalize and they internalize. So when we burn our hand on a stove, 
we now know all stoves burn. Mm -hmm. The survival response that helps us. But then they also think they did something bad for touching the stove, which helps keep them from doing it again. But then when we have these other experiences, um, like being ridiculed in front of a classroom or a parent not being present or more shock trauma abuse, we internalize that and we generalize it. I'm all bad. The world isn't safe. People will hurt me. We don't understand like, oh, just they hurt me. And so it really then starts to carry on in their life and, and, and create these patterns and dynamics that show up in so many different areas. Which takes us back to the adverse childhood experiences. Growing yeah. up in a household in which a caregiver has a mental illness and cannot be emotionally present or is, has an addiction and cannot be emotionally and or physically present. You know, maybe they're out using or in jail or whatever. You know, children, I've worked with so many families where a young child has, has said to me, why is such and such parent choosing the drugs over me? Yeah. And, and the child, like you said, is egocentric and overgeneralizes and it just breaks my heart. And trying to explain it to a child, especially you know, under 10, in a way that they can understand, um, you can, it's difficult and they can get it intellectually, but getting it intellectually and getting it internally are two completely different things. And that's so much of my practice too. I would say 80% of my practice is people who have been in therapy for 10 years or more and they come in and they go, Curtis, logically, I know I'm good enough. Logically, I know I'm safe. I talk through this. I have these skills. Emotionally, it does not sync up for me. And that's where I tend to see that trauma response and core negative beliefs that come from them are really stuck at a deep level. That's hard to out therapy and that is able to get to through the, the trauma therapy. Mm -hmm. and, and so what modalities do you recommend for people to explore? I know I've made a bunch of referrals of clients to um, EMDR therapists over the years. Um, what modalities do you recommend for people to tap into that? If they know on a cognitive level, you know, okay, I know what's, what's happening. I've acknowledged the trauma. I've talked through it. I know I'm good enough, smart enough, and people like me and all that stuff, but I still don't feel. Mm -hmm. I, don't, I still don't feel good. Um, how do you help them get those things back in sync? So my approach, this is just how I operate. I like to use EMDR for single incident adult onset trauma. Mm -hmm. It can be used for childhood trauma. I say that it should be a very skilled clinician that understands dissociation very well because EMDR, the nature of it is triggering and, and it can be very difficult to work with when there's complex PTSD and a lot of early childhood trauma. So when I have someone who calls me is like, I was just in a car accident or I was mugged and they don't really have significant childhood trauma. Uh, EMDR is an easy go-to. They're going to have one to six sessions. I've, I've resolved someone's car accident trauma in one session with EMDR. They're one of the few people who didn't really have any childhood trauma. Um, I think the one thing the ACEs questions misses a little bit is attachment disruption. Mm -hmm. I wish they'd put a question on, on there of do you have one or more parents that you felt like didn't get you or understand you because um, that is a trauma as well. 
If there's more significant trauma, really repeated early childhood trauma, and what's important for me to gauge when I'm meeting with someone, I'm not asking them, what's your trauma? What happened? Um, I want to know, was there, do they identify as having shock trauma or attachment trauma? At what age did it happen? I don't need to know the details, only going to trigger them. And then what was their response? Did they respond in a fight flight state? Did they respond in a dissociative state? That's going to inform me of what their body is going to want to go to when we start to do the trauma work. Mm -hmm. I really don't gather specific trauma history in the first five sessions. Uh, it's usually just triggering. And I think a lot of therapists come from more of a like curious, I want to know about this trauma because it's fascinating rather than mm -hmm. is, is it really helpful for the mm -hmm. client. So if there is a more significant childhood trauma, I'm leaning towards the comprehensive resource model, which was originally designed for people with DID. So it's very gentle. It's very resourcing is built into it. So it allows them to stay in their social, social engagement while processing terror. So uh, before you keep going with that. Um, can you explain to some of our, our listeners who haven't done the EMDR training and um, comprehensive resource model a little bit more about resourcing? You, you've referred to resourcing several times. What specifically is resourcing? So resourcing can look very different um, depending on what it is. I think people know more about resourcing than they think they do. One version of resourcing would be like breathing exercises, like starting to get that nervous system a little more calm, grounding exercises, mindfulness. Um, so creating a toolbox they can go to when they start to feel like they're leaving their social engagement zone. Absolutely. Okay. Yeah. Um, there's other types of resourcing where you can use EMDR or some of these other trauma modalities um, in a positive way. So instead of first jumping to traumatic experiences, I would use bilateral stimulation to um, enhanced times they feel like they've done something really well or felt really strong or felt really confident and they're just remembering that memory of a really positive experience and the bilateral stimulation helps solidify it and, and bring it together so that they feel like they internally have a little more resources in them before we drop into the really scary stuff. Okay. So you were saying with, with trauma to help the reintegration, um, you often use um, comprehensive resource model for a lot of people because most people have a mixed bag of traumas going into it. And that's a yeah. gentler model. And you, before you get into the heavy stuff, you make sure that um, they're adequately resourced. And then yep. what's the next step? The next step is, is then finding out where did this come from, right? Like what happened, uh, how did it impact them, and letting their brain and body remember and release what happened. So uh, at, this, at this point, the vagus nerve is starting to get all fired up. Yep. Okay. At this point, the vagus nerve is starting to get fired up. If they're, if they're safe and resourced enough, um, it's it's pretty amazing. I will watch people have a trauma response like trembling, mm -hmm. but their breathing is at a steady pace. Mm -hmm. So when they're resourced properly, we can let our body 
remember what happened, but, but not feel like we're back there and we're in it and going through the of it. Our brain and body has an amazing ability to heal itself if there's an environment conducive to healing. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and the comprehensive resource model isn't the end all be all. You know, I think people have tremendous healing in yoga. Bessel van der Kolk has done great studies on, on how just yoga alone helps people. Um, there's brain spotting, there's sensory motor, there's somatic experiencing. A lot of them, they're working on the same thing of helping the person feel safe so they can remember what happened, helping their brain reorganize and file it away, and helping their body release the sensations they didn't get to at the moment. A lot of times in trauma, we're having to suppress. Mm-hmm. Um, and not let our body just do what it naturally does. Dogs let themselves tremble. They don't judge it. We Mm -hmm. judge it. We try to stop it. But trembling is an important response to releasing energy. And so what I see when that is done the right way, without even my feedback, they view the trauma differently. People come out of it thinking, oh, I'm safe now. I'm Mm -hmm. okay now. I'm lovable. I'm whole. I'm good enough. I'm accepted. I'm safe. You know, all these beliefs that they used to feel, I'm not safe. I'm not livable. I'm not good enough. I'm invisible. They shift internally within themselves. It is not me saying, let's look at the facts. And is this true or not? Um, They come out of it. It comes from within them. And when that happens, it's so powerful and it sticks. Mm -hmm. And and when when it comes from me or you, it is telling them what's going yeah. on and we've all been told stuff right. that doesn't calm down that vagus nerve when it comes from within them then there's the pairing between the calming and the vagal response and the situation yeah and then the the you know whatever language we want to use the inner child the parts that's been holding the trauma it can detach and release they can integrate that you know, I think of integration as left brain, right brain integration, brain body integration, and then integrating the parts of ourselves so that then that that vagus nerve realizes, oh, we're safe, we're okay, we can relax, you know. And, um, and we and, can be good enough. When you, when you talk about integration, a yeah. lot of people I work with have this part out here that they hold at arm's length that's the broken part or the wounded part. And that part's not good enough. And mm-hmm. then there's the rest of them. And they're walking around with this, you know, albatross around their neck, so to speak. And it's weighing them down and contributing to that, to that stress because they feel like they're having to hide this part. If somebody knew about this, then they wouldn't love me or I wouldn't be good enough. And helping them integrate those experiences and those choices and their life in terms of, you know, it's made them who they are. And it's provided yeah. them strengths and it's provided them perspectives that they may not have had otherwise. Would you have chosen to go down that path? Probably not um, in, in many cases. However, uh, instead of judging what happened, you know, I shouldn't have been walking uh, to my car at 11 o'clock at night by myself. Mm-hmm. Well, you did. It happened. You were mm-hmm. mugged. Okay. You know, we can't change that, but you know, we can integrate that so you can feel safe again. So every time it gets dark, you don't start having those vagal nerve reactions. Absolutely. Yeah. That 
our nervous system's number one job is to keep us safe. And it doesn't really care about the context so much. If we're robbed at an ATM machine, it's going to see other ATM machines as a threat, as a threat, even if we're in a different state. And so that's what its job is there to do. And if, if we can help resolve that so they can detach from it, I don't see the responses anymore. The people don't respond to it. They don't feel the responsibility, the guilt and the shame and these belief systems. And, you know, I think when we're talking about shock trauma, that's a little easier for people to realize, oh, I need trauma therapy around this. And, mm-hmm. and I don't like that. I, I, I check the locks all the time. But, you know, when I hear about people who have stubborn negative belief systems of I'm not good enough, and they don't know where it comes from, to me, that's trauma as well. But it really requires accessing kind of the subconscious to find out where does it come from. And I think that's what a lot of these modalities help do. There's somebody I know um, was put up for adoption when they were very young, um, infant, and was adopted into a loving family and yada, yada, yada. But I believe that person really has some ongoing trauma and abandonment issues and stuff from surrounding that mainly because this person will diagnose themselves with every negative disorder in the book, specifically the personality disorders. Um, They are self-proclaimed antisocial and um, uh, narcissistic. (laughs) I'm like, okay. Um, But looking at that person from, from the outside, I'm going, I don't see it. And, and one of the things that, or I don't see why they're seeing themselves in that way. They have those memories. Um, Sandra L. Bloom wrote a series of books on um, destroying sanctuary, destroying sanctuary and creating sanctuary. But one of the things she talks a lot about in her books is the fact that we need to change our language from why are you doing that to what happened to you? Because mm-hmm. what we do from a survival perspective makes so much sense. And our vagus nerve is stupid. You know, it's like that, that young child that overgeneralizes, but it does it to keep us safe. Yeah. Helping educate the brain so it can communicate better with the nerves. Um, yeah. And, and uh, which kind of moves into internal family systems theory. Um, totally. Can uh, really help people start dealing with their traumas. Yeah, I love that. That is a big piece that I work on all the time is, is one shifting from like, why did I do that? That was dumb or whatever to having curiosity of, of that's interesting. I did that. And then, I, and then I always like to use kind of what you said is, oh, that makes sense. Given this information that I would respond that way. It's, it's a more compassionate stance that then allows us to move into healing if we're judging ourselves, we're creating shame and shame does not foster the environment for healing. Right. And she talks a lot about, um, you know, like you said, acknowledging our behaviors, accepting and being curious about where they came from, but then moving towards our vision of the future. If I don't want to keep doing this, what do I want the future to look like? And how can I move? How can I empower myself to move forward? Mm hmm. 
So it's, it's a fascinating book, but yeah, it's fascinating. you know, a lot of basically just kind of wrapping everything up a lot of trauma work, whether you want to call it, um, whether you want to focus just on the HPA axis or the whole polyvagal system, trauma is biopsychosocial, just yeah. doing one, just medicating it, ain't going to cut it. Just doing talk therapy likely isn't going to do the job. We really need to integrate all of those things. And, and, I put social out there too, because our people, people who've experienced trauma, their social support system needs to be compassionate and not say, oh, you just need to suck it up. Um, My specialty is working with first responders and that can be a challenging group to work with because that is common. They don't like talking about feelings Mm -hmm. um, and they often believe that you know, okay, it happened, it happened to somebody else and I just need to suck it up. And and we talk a lot about how you responded on Thanksgiving day to a child who drowned in their family's pool, a Mm four-year-old, and you have a four-year-old at home. You know, let's think about why this might be traumatic for you, even though it didn't happen to you. Right. And, and we go through that and talk about the um, body's internal reaction to those stimuli. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. I think that's really important. So I think the listeners probably gleaned a lot from polyvagal theory and they're going to have to digest a bunch of it. Um, I'd love to talk more about this maybe in another episode. Is there anything else that you want to sort of add or wrap up before we end this? Um, I think for me, it's, it's also very much about making sure we're individualizing treatment and we're not trying to put one thing as the as the tool that fixes everybody i think we are incredibly complex people um i agree trauma is biopsychosocial it impacts the mind body and the brain we need to educate the client on that first so that they understand and can engage we need to understand we need to help the support system around them understand that a tip to the listeners what i often do is I use my dog that was a rescue dog to help them. I think we're more compassionate with animals than we are with humans. Oh, and so I, I use his trauma responses and how I had to work with him and be patient and kind and create a safe environment so that over time he could come out. And, and now he's a great loving dog, but he was so scared before helping educate the system around them. And then asking what's going to help this person and taking our own ego out of it because it might not be me Mm -hmm. and why am I recommending this person do this you know Mm -hmm. so that we understand the why to things I think if people are interested in working with trauma one of the huge learning lessons for me has been really understanding dissociation I don't think dissociation is talked about enough and it is more prevalent than people think. Um, the body and the brain's ability to dissociate is, is amazing. It blows my mind. And if we are not gentle and understanding the person's, how they respond to danger, we can create more harm. I can't tell you how many times I've had to do trauma therapy around someone who did trauma therapy. Right. Because they're right. traumatized. And you know, I can make the connection. Um, in January, my mother passed away and it was very mm-hmm. sudden and she was in, uh, we had hospice care. When I was not in the room, 
I was a complete basket case. But as soon as I would walk in the room, it was like all my emotions just split away mm-hmm. and I could, I could get business done, whatever needed to be done in order to make her comfortable and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, and a lot of times people don't associate that or think about that as dissociation. But anytime mm-hmm. you're splitting your emotions off and putting them in a box and going, not now. Yeah. That's really what we're talking about. And like you said, for therapists, a lot of times uh, I, I see a lot of dissociation in, yeah. in therapists and sometimes it's, it's healthy. You know, they do it, they come right back, they process it, yada, yada. But other yeah. times they just start dissociating and then eventually just become numb and they're sort of robotic in their approaches because they're so overwhelmed with all of the stuff that they've kind of taken on and haven't dealt with. Yeah. And also what they found is if we're in a fight, flight, freeze response, or if we're in the thick of that, the hippocampus shuts down. Mm -hmm. The hippocampus is responsible for consolidating memory. So at that point, we're not doing anything good. Mm -hmm. So it's very important to be able to recognize these responses. And some of these people are very good and you never know what will trigger them. I had a client recently who had originally come in for one issue, it really turned into a lot of other issues, uh, but the primary one was difficulty around if she wanted to stay in her marriage or not. She couldn't even put words to it because it was such a scary thought to her. And what I noticed is when I verbalized, is this what you're trying to get at? She got this big gaze in her eyes and I asked her, are you feeling your legs right now? And she said, actually, no, they're numb. And just that topic was so overwhelming, it triggered her dissociative response. So it's very important to recognize like, how, how, what does dissociation look like? Uh, it looks different in different people. What's mm-hmm. triggering it? Everybody has their own window of tolerance and really working within that window. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I think this has been a really fascinating discussion. And yeah. y- you know, I like talking about uh, the mind-body connection and trauma and all that stuff. So I really hope we can get together again and, and talk soon. But for those of you uh, who are listening, please, if you want to find out more, you can go to curtisbazanski.com and uh, Curtis does do trainings in the San Francisco, Sacramento sorry, Sacramento area. Um, and uh, you can sign up for his face-to-face trainings if you want to learn more about trauma and healing. Thanks everybody Thank for being here today. Thank you for being here. Thank you. I had a great time. And uh, I will talk to everybody later. Bye-bye. If this podcast helps you help your clients or yourself, please support us by purchasing your CEUs at allceus.com or getting your agency to sponsor an episode. A direct link to the on-demand CEUs for this podcast is at allceus.com slash podcast CEUs. That's allceus.com slash podcast CEUs. To sponsor an episode of Counselor Toolbox and reach over 50,000 clinicians per week, go to allceus.com slash sponsor. Thank you.